you want to rock? Well, we're going to talk some rock with glam metal legend, Twisted Sister guitarist, J.J. French. We talk the status of the band, and we look back at all the classic albums. And we need to help J.J.'s bandmate, D. Snyder, on his crusade to have ACDC play the Super Bowl. I put a link to the petition in the description, so you better sign it. Here's the interview. Check it out. J.J., welcome to the 80s Glam Metal Cast. How you doing tonight, sir? I'm doing quite well. Thank you, Mike. Great. Well, thanks for talking to me tonight. Um, why don't you tell us what you've been up to since the uh, end of Twisted Sister? What's been going on with your business? Well, I think that's a, a misconception with people. We stopped playing live, but that's it. The business of Twisted continues on. Um, we're basically a licensing machine at this point. I don't know if you saw the Super Bowl ad with I Want to Rock, but we just did a huge deal with Facebook uh, to use I Want to Rock, and we are now the most licensed, musically, the most licensed heavy metal band in history. Um, so this little band from Long Island that started uh, 47 years ago now is in, has its music in more TV shows, soundtracks, movies, movie trailers, commercials than any other heavy metal band, more than ACDC, Kiss, Guns N' Roses. Uh, and, of course, these are wonderful bands. But um, I have to say that I Want to Rock and We're Not Going to Take It are two landmark songs, and they have uh, essentially stamped uh, the 80s everywhere. And people love this music, and um, we benefit by it. But it, this is not an accident. This is something that I saw years ago. Um, and all I can say is I'm grateful uh, that it has worked out the way it's worked out, because as you know, Mike, because you read the stories all the time, how bands struggle with streaming and record royalties, with the, with the drop of sales and with streaming not paying very much, uh, you're stuck with touring. And we stopped touring, so we have been able to turn our attention completely to the marketing licensing world. So uh, I'm, I run the licensing division of the band, which is huge, and I also write for several magazines. Um, I write for Goldmine Magazine. I write a Beatle column. I'm considered a Beatle specialist. I write an audio column for a magazine called Copper, which is available online. Um, PSAudio.com is a company. PS Audio is a high-end company, and they have a website, PS Audio. It's like, it's like Paul Smith, PSAudio.com. They have a website. You go there, and Copper is their online magazine, and I write articles for their online magazine, which are wide-ranging covers everything from uh, musical equipment, uh, audio equipment, high-end audio equipment, my perceptions of high-end audio equipment, my perceptions of the music business, the industry. It allows me a gigantic swath of choices to write about. And I also have just finished writing for five years for Inc.com. It's I-N-C, not I-N-K. It's not a tattoo site. It's a business site. And Inc.com has published about 53 of my articles having to do with uh, business lessons learned through the prism of rock and roll. And all of that dovetails into telling you that my book is done, and my book will be out later this year or first quarter next year. And it's a business book, and it's a memoir. So it's both. It's, uh, I call it a bizwar. <laughs> I coined a new phrase, which is a business book and a memoir, because most books about successful business people are memoirs and business books because you can't write your story about business without telling the story of your life and how what you did in your life made you the business person that you are and twisted sister has and always has been a business 
and um, it's kind of counter to what most people think heavy metal bands, which are, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, and fairy dust. But it's also not Gene Simmons either. You know, Gene uh, gets a lot of heat from the cynical standpoint of he's always accused of talking, you know, kiss business, kiss business, kiss business, and not enough about the music. Well, the music matters to Twisted Sister, uh, but we also managed to figure out a way to make a thriving business. So it's all-encompassing, and um, that's essentially what's going on right now. I'm really, really busy every single day. Yeah, sounds it. So I guess essentially the answer to the question really is is that Twisted Sister will last forever, basically, at this point, correct? It will last, yeah, longer than Cher. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, when people say to me, by the way, what's the high point of Twisted Sister's career? You know, is it, you know, the multi-platinum albums, of which we have many? Um, or is it the, the tours, and especially the reunion that lasted 14 years, in which we wound up the last year, the crowds that we played to were anywhere from 60 to 110,000 people per night. So people ask me, What's the high point of the band's career? Is it all of that? Is it, you know, you know, when I hired D or, or something like that? And I would say, well, the high point of the career is that we made Blackwell's Worst Dressed Women's List in 1988. So um, <laughs> uh, maybe I'll either have to live that down or I will, I will um, rejoice and wallow in the, uh, in the uniqueness of making Blackwell's Worst Dressed Women's List. By the way, many people don't know what that is. Because Blackwell, I think, died years ago. But this fashion maven, whose name was known as Blackwell, um, used to publish his worst dressed women's list for years and years and years. And before the internet, before Instagram, before uh, Twitter, uh, before email, um, he would publish this every year. And if you made the worst dressed women's list, it was always made the news. So think about women who he would consider to be the worst dressed women. He would, you know, make fun of Cher, or he'd make, uh, oh God, let me think, who else could he make, make fun of? Just really ostentatiously, over-the-top dressed women, and he would just say it's the worst dressed women's list. And so, in 1988, we made the worst dressed women's list. So there's, that's the high point of my life. <laughs> so let's talk about guitar a little bit. Who are some of your influences as a guitarist? Um, you know, my brother uh, started me out playing folk guitar, uh, folk style, Travis Picking, when I was 10 years old. And, for, uh, and the Beatles came when I was 11. And between the ages of 11 and 15, I played in local bands as a bass player because I took upright bass in school. Uh, but when I heard the blues guitar playing of uh, Mike Bloomfield from the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, it really inspired me. And made me want to become a blues guitar player. So I bought a Fender Telecaster, brand new on 48th Street in 1967 for $135, because that's how much they were going for in those days, because Mike Bloomfield played a Telecaster. So I fell in love with Mike Bloomfield, and then within a very short period of time, that morphed into Eric Clapton with the Blues Breakers and then Cream. And then because of Eric Clapton's playing on Strange Brew, he lifted the entire solo from Albert King's uh, uh, Crosscut Saw, so I got into Albert King, and um, a great deal, like heavily. And then B.B. King after that, and then Hendrix after that. Um, and Keith Richards gets thrown in there, too, because I, I, you know, became a, I, was a, I kind of went backwards and then became a giant Chuck Berry fan. 
And, um, you know, then when, then you start getting into the blues, like really into the blues, and you start going backwards, um, and you start getting into Muddy Waters, and then you're getting into Howlin' Wolf, um, and then that opens up Mississippi Fred McDowell and Sunhouse, and you take it all the way back to Elmore James, and then you take that back to Robert Johnson. And these are all the artists that I listen to, Sonny Boy Williamson, Memphis Slim, uh, Victoria Spivey, Lonnie Johnson. These are the people that infuse my playing. I'm a blues guitar player, and, and that's what I love to listen to. That's my classical music. I can listen to that all, all day long. So again, Mike Bloomfield from the Paul Butterfield Blues Band was the great super guitar player. And then, you know, Clapton. And by the way, Johnny Winter gets thrown in there. Roy Buchanan gets thrown in there. These were all giants in their field. These are the guitar players that affected me the most. Where did the metallic piece of the sound come from, at least for the band? Where, where did you guys, where did that all brew from? That evolved. You know, um, heavy metal was originally just really loud blues. You know, Sabbath altered the chord progressions and it became more demonic sounding. But metal in its infancy was just really amplified blues. And, and if you look at ACDC and ZZ Top, they're blues bands sure. that are heavily amp amplified. Um, but what happened was uh, when Priest came out, uh, Twisted Sister had kind of evolved from um, a David Bowie Lou Reed, Martha Hoople um, period, and, um, and, and then we kind of morphed into an Alice Cooper-ish period. Rocky Horror came out, and then we kind of like morphed into that image a little bit. And then Priest came out and had a profound effect on the band. Priest and ACDC had a huge effect, so if you listen to our records, you'll hear Priest and ACDC. And, and Priest, the metal that Priest played was about as metal as the band uh, got. You know, we we were not uh, composed of shredders, and it didn't. You know, Van Halen was a great guitar player to listen to, but it wasn't the focus of what the band was. Although, as a bar band, we played Van Halen songs, and we played Ozzy songs, we played Sabbath songs, and Rainbow songs, um, because that was the, the the current music of the day. But that was the evolution of the sound of, of Twisted Sister. You can hear it and shoot them down um, uh, easily. Um, for example, I mean, Shoot Down was almost a perfect example of an ACDC uh, type of tune. And it's funny you mentioned Alice Cooper because I think as a kid, you know, D, the visual image of D, I never really thought much about Alice Cooper because he, you know, I was I got into music in the 80s, but, you know, I went back and got into all the old Alice Cooper albums. And when I listen to a lot of D stuff, I can hear where there's times where his voice has a little bit of the Cooper vibe or even well, lyrically, there, yeah. Yeah, but also from a songwriting standpoint, Cooper wrote incredible anthems. Sure. And Dee, Dee wrote anthems, you know, and I think we love Billion Dollar Babies and I'm 18 and Under My Wheels, uh, uh, School's Out. Uh, Alice had mega, mega, mega hits that were all great, and, 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 and Dee wrote anthemic songs. You know, I think Slade, Alice Cooper, um, even Kiss with Rock and Roll All Night, Party Every Day, these were anthemic songs of their era uh, that kind of maybe rubbed off themselves into the band. But for sure, Slade had a huge impact on the band. And Alice Cooper, because Dee loved Alice's image, eventually Alice you know, played on one of our albums, It'd Be Cool to Your School, yep. as a duet with Dee. We performed it on stage with him. Um, uh, their, their drummer, 
Um, or, uh, Michael Bruce played with us on stage one night. Uh, their song, their chief songwriter, um, Neil, the drummer, auditioned for Twisted Sister at one point, and we were between drummers. So we have a, a strong kinship to Alice Cooper. When um, you go back and you look at the songwriting credits, I think most songs are written by D. Um, did you guys write, and it just didn't make the album, or what was the the dynamic with that? Well, I, I can only speak for me, and I don't really write. Uh, my songs are too are too quirky for Twisted. <laughs> they were never gonna be. They were never gonna be for Twisted. You know, when when the band started, and I was in the, in the first version of the band. Um, uh, I always relied on somebody else to write and sing because I'm not a singer and I'm not a writer. So I needed to hook up with a singer and a writer. And Dee turned out to be a phenomenal singer and a, and a phenomenal writer. So for me, I never had a problem with it. I think Eddie and Mark wrote and and, and, and whatever the political wins were that, that didn't get them on the record, I can't speak to because I never, uh, I was never affected by it. It wasn't like I said, hey man, here's a song, let's try it. Um, I always said to D, what do you got? What do you got? You know, what do you have? And uh, and he just kept getting better and better and better. What's crazy too is is the it's not just the lyrics, but it's the melodies. When you look at something like uh, "Come Out and Play," that verse melody, it's almost like classical music. You know what I mean? He's got some crazy melodies that he has. Well, he's not a schooled musician, but he's a musician and he's a songwriter, and all this stuff was in his head, and it kind of. You know, but he always did. Going back to the very first anthem, which we recorded, which I'll never is called "I'll Never Grow Up Now," and then we did "Bad Boys of Rock and Roll." These were our, these were singles that we released on our own record label. These were anthemic songs. So when we finally had the hit with "I Am I Me" in England, that didn't surprise me that that was a hit. That was the next evolution of Dee's anthem writing. You know, the kids are back was all all that as well as you can't stop rock and roll. That's also very anthemic. So when it came to Stay Hungry, um, there was full of anthems of Stay Hungry. You know, you've got, you know, we're not going to take it, you ever want to rock, you have Burn in Hell, Captain Howdy, Street Justice. Um, I mean, the whole album is a classic album. It SMF is. is an anthem. These are great songs. I mean, that album was a perfect album. By the way, that album is coming out on a Mobile Fidelity Super Pressing for the 35th anniversary. It will be out in a couple of months. You can pre-order the Stay Hungry Super Pressing on Mobile Fidelity Vinyl. And um, I don't know if you know, but the biggest uh, lacquer uh, printing plant just burned down in California. I don't know if you know about this. This is a real disaster in the record world, like really a bad thing. The company that makes the lacquers, the records are pressed with, burned to the ground. Did, did you know this? Um, I, Mike, I, did you know this? No, I don't think I knew this. <laughs> yeah. Okay. This happened, this happened two days ago. This is a true disaster. Uh, we uh, unless there's only one other there's only one other plant in the world and it's in Japan, and they've got to figure out what they're going to do. Otherwise, the the um, manufacturing of vinyl is going to stop. Wow, which is which sucks because vinyl is now starting to overtake CDs. Uh, vinyl's coming back so big, uh, but people should understand that the that the vinyl that the lacquer the plant that creates the lacquers that the records get pressed out of completely burned to the ground two days ago in California. And that's going to be a severe setback to record collectors especially. Well, let's talk a little more about uh, Stay Hungry because this was a mammoth success. Uh, like you said, it's a perfect album. It's, it's a heavy album. Uh, what are some of your memories of that time? you got to have some great stories from that era. Well, you know, we had a hard time finding a producer. 
which sounds weird, but we kept getting turned down by producers, and uh, which was frustrating. Um, uh, they just didn't believe in the songs. And Worman, I think Worman saw that the commitment from the record label was strong, but I'm not sure Worman believed in the songs all that much either, because he came to their first rehearsals with um, a bunch of cover songs for us to do. Sounds crazy, right? Sounds crazy. Sounds crazy. You say to yourself, how do you not recognize uh, Burn in Hell and, and, and uh, Don't Let Me Down and We're Not Going to Take It and I Want to Rock? But he didn't. Um, he came with cover songs, which really offended Dee um, and, and really kind of offended all of us. We were like, well, what's up with that? You know, we think these songs are good. So it didn't start off the relationship too well between us all, to, be, to use the overly uh, used phrase, to be quite honest with you. But to be quite honest with you, it didn't start our, our relationship with Tom Wormanoff extremely well, on a high note. And, and so we kind of struggled through the recording. Um, we recorded in Cherokee Studios in L.A. We started in New York at the record plant. And during the basic tracks of Burn in Hell, there was a fire <laughs> at the record plant. I know it sounds crazy and it sounds like a story and it sounds like BS, but it's true. And um, we weren't getting much done because we're all from New York, and I think we were being distracted by dental appointments and, you know, and, and just what happens when you're local and, you know, you got to deal with your crap day to day. So Worman wanted to go back to California. He wanted to go to Cherokee. Worman had had enormous success with Cheap Trick, enormous success with Ted Nugent, um, enormous success with Molly Crew. So he was the hottest producer of the day. And um, we all went out to Cherokee on Fairfax, uh, um, off of Sunset Boulevard and um, recorded most of the album and then started to mix, um, I believe, um, in Quincy Jones's studio. I believe that the engineers that we were working with had worked on Thriller. And um, Thriller, of course, was at the top of the charts at that point, oh, you know, sure. like number one for, I don't know, six months or whatever. And they were telling stories about how the record label didn't think there was any hits on the record. And it just made me think of how nobody knows nothing. You know That's what right. I mean? Like, <laughs> nobody, like, no, like, so nobody knows nothing. When it comes to the music business, I'm sorry, but, it, but who the hell knows why anything works? You just don't. And, and I was looking at it and seeing that Rat was having enormous success with uh, Out of the Cellar. And they were on Atlantic, and Atlantic was having a hot streak because, you know, they had ACDC. And Rat comes up, and, of course, Motley was big. And Quiet Riot led the way with, uh, you know, with their album. Mm -hmm. So I think I looked at it and I said, wow, like we're the next little jet on the runway. You know, if we make the right record, you know, we'll be the next jet to take off. But it really wasn't until the videos were done that we realized things were going to get crazy. And when we did the videos and they hit MTV, things went crazy immediately. Um, the videos defined MTV. The videos defined how the world perceived Twisted Sister, good and bad. Right. I'm going to tell you that because it wasn't necessarily for the good. Uh, we got trapped in, in how people perceived us. We were not what we appeared to be on many different levels. We were what we appeared to be in the video, but that was a small slice of what the band really was. It was a hard-bitten bar band from New York who kind of got swept up into the entire glam 80s hair LA thing, which we had nothing to do with. We didn't know any of those bands. We never met any of those bands. We never really toured with any of those bands. 
if you think about it, Mike, us and Cinderella were the East Coast, you know, hair bands, for right. lack of a better word. Sure. And, and, and the whole so- SoCal thing was not us. We didn't sound like it. We didn't play like it. We didn't know them. You know, we'd run across these guys occasionally, but we had nothing in common with them. We were older than they were. These bands were in their 20s. We were already in our mid-30s. We were straight. We didn't drink and do drugs. They did. We had no relationship with them because we didn't want to hang out with them because <laughs> we weren't getting stoned. I'm not saying we're better or worse. What I'm saying is that there were different lifestyles. And, and our lifestyle was completely different from their lifestyle. So we didn't share, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be invited to parties because we wouldn't go to them anyway. So uh, we were very isolated. And uh, we were isolated and became famous, and then we became misunderstood uh, because one half of the people thought we were totally out of our minds, crazy, gay, you know, home, you know like raving alcoholic, drug addict, homosexual. Right? <laughs> that's one perception. And then the other side of it was like, that's the straightest band on the planet Earth, and nobody wants to hang with them. So it was a, a, I think you can imagine, if you didn't know any of these things, you may be in shock right now to hear them. I, I have no idea, but. That was the weird weirdness of the times. So let's talk about come out and play. And and you're a business. You know, you're in the music business. Like I said, you you're, you're the you're kind of the business guy of the band. When you look back at at that album, what do you think went wrong there? What what went wrong with come out and play? Uh, what went wrong was the leader of the pack, which was a song that always worked for us in the bars, didn't work as a single. It should right. never have been released. Right. We should have led with um, Fire Still Burns, um, with a video that was like Fire Still Burns. It was a big, it was a mistake. I mean, it was a mistake we didn't recover from. Um, because between the PMRC attacking us for being the worst thing that ever happened in the world, to kids understanding that maybe we were the straightest band in the world, we weren't legitimately a bunch of drug addict alcoholics, we actually were just regular guys who just dressed up crazy and ran around stage, we got kind of stuck in between, and then a video comes out that nobody really understood, even though for us it was funny because we used to play the song in the bars. It didn't work. And that was, a, that was really the beginning of the end, and, that, and we never recovered. So even though the album went multi-platinum around the world in several countries, and we toured extensively on that album, um, it was very demoralizing. The times were changing anyway. And uh, well, by the time it got to Lovers for Suckers, you know, it was kind of like, that was our Let It Be. That was our breakup album. Right. You know, we just couldn't wait to get the album done and be over with it. And, and that was the end. So that's kind of like what happened. It, you know, it was a long way up. The, it was a 12-year battle to get to Stay Hungry. 13, 12, 13 years to get to, to Stay Hungry. And then it exploded in a megawatt explosion. And almost as fast, it just kind of went... So the fact that we then stopped... For 12 years with no intention of ever playing again and because of a confluence of circumstances and coincidences the main one being 9-11 and the band deciding to reform to do a benefit that altered everything brought the band back and with it brought interest in the band really big then we did the Christmas album then everyone started licensing our music like crazy and then between the licensing and the re, the re, the finding out of Twisted Sister and then us headlining these gigantic shows in Europe where we had never headlined before, all of a sudden we came back and everybody wanted the band to headline, so we headlined. I, I think out of the 125 shows we played, 
since we came back, probably a hundred of them were headlining these massive stadium shows. Um, it gave our credibility back. And then, then the documentary came out. And the documentary told the story and legitimized the band in the, in the eyes of everybody. So I can sit here with you on the phone talking about something that's interesting to people, whereas if we didn't come back in, in, uh, in 2003... Uh, you and I wouldn't be having this phone conversation. Right. Yeah, exactly. Do you think back, if we, we think back of like the mega success and then everything that follows, does success complicate things? Well, you know what? First of all, I was not a teenager when things hit. I was I was older and had a more mature view of it. So I can't say that the mistakes were made out of, out of um, uh, ignorance uh, or stupidity of youth. We made calculated decisions that were wrong. And then when the whole thing fell apart, there was a, a gigantic lawsuit. And Dee and I had to both file for bankruptcy and start our lives all over again. And it was very, very tough because everybody in the world knew who we were. And, you know, we, had a, we went bankrupt. And, and, and then Dee went on his, whole, his own path. I went on mine. And we had to reinvent ourselves. And... and uh, that's the key to survival, is reinvention. That's what my book is about. Um, my book is called The Twisted Method of Reinvention. Um, and it's T-W-I-S-T-E-D. The seven letters of twisted are the rules of my, of, of, of my life, which is tenacity, wisdom, inspiration, stability, trust, excellence, and discipline. Those, those are the seven rules. And uh, you know, the bottom line, Mike, is that Twisted Sister was turned down more times in a bed sheet and in a whorehouse and count, have come back more times than Freddy Krueger. So um, we know how to survive, and survival is like life. Twisted Sisters started 47 years ago. So if you said to me 47 years ago, J.J., how long will the band last? I'd say, I don't know, five years. Right. I think if you said to Kiss, and, I, and you said to Judas Priest, and you said to ACDC, we all came around the same time, 73, and you said to any of us, how long is your band going to last? You know, we'd say, I don't know, five years, because at that point, the Beatles were the only band that ever got got to ten years. They were ten years when they split, so that was about as long as you'd ever want to get. I could never have anticipated that forty-seven years later, my band is bigger than ever. Our records, our streaming is bigger than ever. My royalty statements are bigger than ever. Um, we, the Super Bowl ad was the biggest thing we've gotten, and we've gotten hundreds of sync licenses. These are the licenses you get when you when you license your music mm -hmm. for various products hundreds of them um we just had our best week in history last week go figure that's awesome so real quick just i want to talk about love is for suckers for a minute do you, do you like that album okay. um i know did you, um, did you play on a lot of it I, I know this is going to sound weird i don't know how much of that record i'm on or Eddie Ojeda <laughs> is on for that matter right i know that we there was a drum machine so we didn't have a drummer because um, Joe Franco programmed a drum machine, and I think Red Beach played a lot of the guitar parts, and I have no idea how much I'm on it. Um, I don't really listen to it. It was supposed to be a Dee Snyder solo album. Right. It was recorded during the band's demise, like things were falling apart. Um, I think some of the songs are good. Uh, I think Wake Up the Sleeping Giant is a great song. Amazing song. For, for example. You know, I think it's a really good song. I think there's some really good songs on the record. It's it's not my favorite in terms of memories of the band. But then, to be fair, I don't play Twisted Sister music very much. I don't right. think bands play their own music very much. No. 
regardless of, of what it is. I think, you know, you know how actors don't see their own movies? Yeah. You know, like yeah. an interview, they go, so what do you think? He goes, I don't know, I never saw my own movie. And you go, how do you not see your own movie? I don't understand, you know? Well, I get it now. I don't need to listen to Twisted Sister. I played the songs, you know, 80,000 times. And um, if somebody comes to my house and wants to hear it, I give them the CDs and say, take them home. Uh, not to be disrespectful, I just don't need to listen to it. I'll listen to other things. Uh, but Love is for Suckers is the least played Twisted Sister record. I'll tell you the record... Uh, I, you Can't Stop Rock and Roll is my favorite Twisted Sister record. Mm -hmm. By far. I think it's D's as well. D and I talked about it recently. That's our favorite record. And I think Come Out and Play is an underrated record. Yeah. But it's really good. Um, so you mentioned Gene Simmons a couple times. And I thought I read something that you jammed with Wicked Lester or you played with those. Did you ever do anything with Wicked Lester or the early days of Paul and Gene? I, I was I was one of probably, I don't know, 20 guitar players who auditioned. Okay for them and uh it was nothing more than that some guy mentioned it to me one day you know and i said ah you know i auditioned because they're new york guys so a bunch of new york guys probably auditioned for it then it came out jj was in kiss and i went you know what i never said i was in kiss <laughs> i never ever said i was in kiss this is so stupid i've been hearing this for the last 40 years ever since i made the statement you know when someone said well did you ever well, another band i said well i auditioned for wicked lester that became kiss that became i was in kiss no never Never was. In June of 72, uh, I met Gene and Paul. They were auditioning guitar players, hung out with them for a couple of weeks, uh, jammed with them for a couple, a couple of times. And that was it. Sum total of that. That was the sum total of the connection. Have your paths crossed uh, much throughout, uh, throughout your career? One time, they, we were playing Nassau Coliseum with Dio, and I think Gene and Paul came down to the dressing room and I think that's it mm -hmm. that's the only time and that was in 1977 okay, so that's wow. the only time I think uh, my paths have crossed with them okay did you which ever... is 40 years ago yeah so. super long time ago uh, talk a little bit about the Christmas album that had to be just like a, a shock that that was going to be a big success wasn't it total shock we were making a joke like this is just going to bomb like we were making a joke like, you know, Twisted Sister, you know, uh, the reunion, it's going to end with this record. I said, this is a guarantee that this will end the reunion. <laughs> um, and so we did it because we thought it was a fun thing to do. Uh, and we found a record label that partnered with us and everything was fine. But um, we thought this would end the career completely. I really thought it was a joke. Um, you know, but people, see, I knew going in that um, people like to give presents at Christmas, they don't like to give downloads, so they're going to really give a <laughs> CD or an album, you know, if you, yep. if you make it, and bottom line is the record, uh, the record sold a uh, quarter of a million copies, and so um, uh, we're real happy, you know, everyone loves it, every year it's played all over the place, the album is, I'm super happy with the record, I'm super happy, I think our live concerts that we filmed, the two DVDs, Vegas and um, at Starland Ballroom are amazing. It's my favorite. It's really actually my favorite. Not that it's my favorite, because it's not really a Twisted Sister record, you know what I mean? It's covers of Christmas songs, but it's probably the record I could listen to the most without wincing, because I just think we, we were smart as hell. You know, when we did the record, we did it. Dee said something to me early on. He said, you know, I wanted to um, 
to do a Christmas album back in 1984. I wanted Iron Maiden to play a song. I wanted Thin Lizzy to play a song. I wanted ACDC to play a song. I wanted Sabbath to play a song. And he said, so let's make this Christmas record like like the, the way they would do it. So if you listen to White Christmas, it's it's arranged the way we thought Iron Maiden would <laughs> okay. do White Christmas. And if you listen to um, Silver Bells, it's the way ACDC would do Silver Bells. So we... And if, uh, so... Um, uh, if you listen to the songs, the songs are definitely performed so that they would sound like the way we imagined our favorite bands would sound if they were going to do a Christmas album. Like I think, have you know, the, have yourself a Merry Christmas. The opening, mm -hmm. that's the way the Ramones would mm -hmm. play a song. Yeah. When we still, we we still have to go ho ho ho, let's go ho ho ho. That was our homage to the to the Ramones. So we had all these homages going on on the Christmas record to the bands that we love the most. We love Judas Priest, we love we love A C D C, we love Iron Maiden, we love the Ramones, we love Black Sabbath, and on and on and on, which is Lita Ford's on the record, you know, singing I'll Be mm -hmm. Home for Christmas. Um, because that's what we wanted to do. And then we did the twelve days of Christmas at the end with a tattoo of Ozzy, right? With Ozzy. <laughs> so um we had a hell of a good time and it was great to perform it on Broadway. It was great to perform it in Vegas. I'd still love to perform it again. I think it's a great show. Yeah, I mean, and people underestimate, well, maybe at the time, but they don't anymore, the power of Christmas music. I mean, look at the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. I mean, radio stations yeah. commit to uh, Christmas music, you know, right after Thanksgiving. So it's it's big business. Yeah. Well, we called it the Transvestite Siberian Orchestra. <laughs> <you know? laughs> That's awesome. Um, we we had a great time making that making that record and the record sold extremely well and it's a standard now and you know ever since then every every metal band has done a Christmas song right they went wait a minute I can do one you know so uh, so we had a great time an amazing time doing it. so when you look back at your whole career what's your biggest takeaway life lesson from your days in Twisted Sister. Oh, I think, like I said, we reinvented ourselves over and over and over again. I think everyone, I think the only, you know, rock and roll bands are the epitome of entrepreneurship, you know. And um, when you're an entrepreneur, the good thing is you don't have to take in orders from a boss, but you better make your own life. And, uh, and that's the pressure. So, you know, you make your own life, you make your own choices, you live and die by them. And um, reinventing ourselves over and over again is what I'm happiest about, that we've succeeded. Uh, we've, we've continued on as a company. And even though AJ has passed away, you know, he's a forever partner. So we all benefit financially from, from this. Um, and we're just grateful. You know, I'm grateful that there's a career. I'm grateful the world cares. Uh, this was an idea that was started in the basement of New Jersey in 1972. Right? The, band, the idea of this band started in the basement in New Jersey in 1972 by five guys, four of whom nobody knows, and me. And that idea, that germ of an idea, became, became Twisted Sister. You know, the same way that McDonald's hamburger started out with Ray Kroc, you know, in a foxhole in World War II, thinking mm -hmm. I'm going to open up a hamburger chain, or, or, um, uh, um, or, or Walt Disney saying I'm going to make a cartoon. It all starts with an idea, and then you got to convince two other, three other people, and then they got to convince ten other people, and they got to convince a hundred people, and that's what rock bands do. So uh, I'm, I can take a very long philosophical look at this, and tell you that I'm proud of the fact that um, the band has a career. I'm also proud of the fact that me, Eddie, 
and Dee have been together for 42 years. Mark has been a little less, like 39. So for me, it's 47 years. For Dee, me, and Eddie, it's it's 42 years, I think. And with Mark, it's 39 years. That's a legacy, my friend. That's a great legacy to be proud of. It sure is. Well, JJ, thanks so much for talking to me tonight. It was a great conversation. Uh, well, thank you so much, man. I, I'm, I'm happy you contacted me, and, and good luck. Wow, that was some great insight from JJ. Well, let me tell you what we've got coming up on the 80s Glam Metalcast. This Sunday, it's going to be an interview with Great White's Mark Kendall. And then next week, we're going to blow your mind with an episode with Joe Lynn Turner. So you know what you need to do. Hit subscribe. Thanks for listening. Rock on!